Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Friday, May 1st here in New York City. I hope everyone is staying safe and healthy during this coronavirus pandemic. Uh, Coming up today on the podcast is an interesting interview I did last week with the head men's basketball coach at Assumption College, Scott Fosher. Uh, but before we get into that, as usual, I'm going to do a recommendation corner. Uh, I just finished reading Michael Lewis's book, Flash Boys, which is about outsiders who try to bring back a level of fairness to Wall Street. I thought it was really interesting and a really good read. So if anyone's looking for a new book to read, I would, I would recommend that one. And, you know, Top Chef has just been crushing it uh, this year. Great episode again last night. Uh, if you haven't been watching, I, I highly recommend to, to check it out. It's a great show. A uh, lot of fun to watch. So coming up, I'm going to hit the music. And when we come back with my interview taped last week with the head men's basketball coach at Assumption College, Scott Fosher. Joining me today on the Double Double is a very special guest, the head men's basketball coach at Assumption College, Scott Fosher. Growing up in New Hampshire, he played his college ball at Wheaton College in the New Mac and began began his coaching career after graduation at St. Michael's College after graduating from Wheaton in 2014. After only one season in Division II, he joined the coaching staff at Bowdoin as an assistant and had a 57-39 record in his four seasons with the Polar Bears. During his time at Bowdoin, he helped coach a NESCAC Player of the Year and a NESCAC Rookie of the Year. And in the summer of 2018, Coach Fosher was named the head coach at Nichols College and led the Bison to the best season in program history as they went 28-3 and advanced all the way to the Elite Eight before falling to eventual national runner-up Swarthmore. After the season, he made the jump from Division Three back to Division Two and was named the head coach at Assumption College in the NE10. In his first season at the helm, he led the team to a winning record at 14-12 and 12 and is primed for even more success going forward. I'm thrilled that he has taken the time to join me today. Coach, how's it going? Hey, David. It's going well. Thanks a lot for having me on, man. I really appreciate the, uh, the invite and definitely love what you're doing on the, on the podcast. So I'm excited to, uh, excited to join you here. Thanks, Coach. I appreciate that. So, so kind of take us back to the beginning. Uh, your dad was a basketball coach. Uh, what was it like growing up in a basketball household? Yeah, so, you know, my dad had really spent his life around basketball, and uh, when I was growing up at that time, he was the head coach at Dartmouth College. Um, so I was really thrown into that type of environment where, you know, at a young age, almost every day I was spending hours in the gym. You know, I never went to daycare or anything like that. After school, I was getting dropped off, uh, trying to go to as many practices as I could. I attended almost every game at a really young age. Uh, and it was really, for me, um, you know, almost like an extended family. You know, each year I considered having, you know, 15 other brothers who, who were on that team and guys I could really look up to as role models. And it was fun firsthand um, at a young age to kind of see the, the work that those guys put in to be successful players at, at the division one level mm-hmm. um and it was also really cool to to just be around that type of environment in you know 
I knew relatively early that I wanted to kind of spend my life around basketball just because I, I loved I loved the game. I kind of loved the, the relationship aspect that, that basketball brought about. Um, and I knew, you know, after playing at a young age, but then also being, you know, around the coaching environment and in a coaching family, I knew that I, I wanted to try to coach once it was all said and done. Gotcha. So what so kind of what was your recruiting process like in high school and how did you end up choosing Wheaton College? Yeah, so for me, you know, I played in public school, uh, the town next to Dartmouth College called Lebanon. Um, played there for four years. I was getting recruited by some of the state schools in New Hampshire, uh, along with some of the other like little East schools. Um, and my goal was to try to attend the highest academic school possible for me, and, and that I could really, you know, see being a good all-around fit. Um, and then after my dad actually coached at Dartmouth, he went on to coach at Kimball Union for a little bit, okay. uh, which is a prep, prep school in New Hampshire, not far from where I grew up. So I decided to do a postgraduate year there, um, you know, played there for the year. And, and during my time there, uh, Wheaton College, that recruitment really picked up for me. And, you know, I, I was familiar with the new Mac, um, took a visit to Wheaton, really liked it. It was high academic school, a place where I could go and, and play and, and really get that you know, strong degree. Um, so I ended up applying early decision to Wheaton and, and pulled the trigger relatively early in the process there. And, you know, from there, just really enjoyed the rest of my postgraduate experience at Kimball Union uh, and then went on to go and, and play four years at Wheaton College. So I talked to uh, the Emmanuel coach, Danny Lawson, about this because he also played for his dad. He played for his dad in college. You played for yeah. your dad in prep school. What were some of the challenges of playing for your dad? In uh, in prep school, you know, D- you know, Doug McDermott wrote about how sometimes he'd have to go into his dad's office to pick up his laundry or, or ask for money to, to, for, for gas, and then you know it, it presents a, a unique a unique challenge. So, so just what was that experience like? So it's actually funny. So I actually, by the time I decided to go to Kimball Union, um, my dad had recently got a different job coaching in Division Three okay. at Daniel Webster College, which is no longer school at the time. So I never played for him at the postgraduate level, but but him coaching there kind of opened up the door for, for me to go to Kimball Union. So that definitely started that process. Um, but there were stretches, you know, where he coached my AAU team or summer basketball team. There were so there were stretches where I played for him. Gotcha. Um, and obviously, it's a different dynamic normally. Um, for me, I actually had a lot of fun playing for him because I think there was a certain level of trust there because right. you know he knew I think what I was probably capable of as a player and he was also logging a lot of hours in the gym with me uh-huh. um, so I think in return that actually created a lot of freedom um, where you know he knows what you're working on every day and, and kind of the freedom to go out there and try some new things um, in some of those games so for me I, I had a lot of fun obviously it is a different dynamic um, you know but we had a strong relationship and, and I always enjoyed playing for him in, in, in those summer times whether that was AAU or, or high school basketball or whatever the case may be. That's great. That's great. So, kind of. So you're at Wheaton. You mentioned that you always that you were thinking of you want to spend your life around the game of basketball. But I'm sure plenty of your teammates and classmates at Wheaton were thinking about you know going into a lot of different fields towards your junior and and, and senior year. Kind of just for people who are listening who might want to get get into coaching. What were some things that that you were doing? your junior or senior year of college to kind of, you know, get ready for, you know, maybe pursuing a career in coaching. Yeah, for sure. And for me, it started a little bit before I was an upperclassman at Wheaton. Um, so one of the things when I was actually a postgraduate uh, at Kimball Union, 
in this area of New Hampshire where I was from, we didn't have a lot of strong AAU programs. You know, you really have to travel an hour and a half or two hours to play AAU. Um, so when I was a postgrad there, I actually started the AAU organization in my hometown. Oh, where that's we had great. three different age groups of, of kind of a 12 and under team, 15 and under team, and a 17 and under team. Um, and obviously I was only like a year removed from that, uh, being the 17 and under team. But it was, a, it was a way for me to, you know, really just spend, you know, every weekend in the gym with the guys in the springtime and, and coach different ages. Um, and I kept that AU program going uh, for the first couple of years. I was at Wheaton, so I would travel back home uh, most weekends in the spring and, and definitely in the summertime to, to coach those guys, which I kept going. And then um, at some point I kind of had to turn that over to somebody else who was more local because I was logging a lot of hours trying to drive back home doing that. Yeah. Um, but then when I was a junior and senior, it was really just try to work as many camps as possible in the summer and, and just be around basketball and, um, you know, not just be around it as a player, which you naturally are when you're a college athlete, but try to be around it as a coach a little bit as well. Um, so for me, that was just try to coach as many teams as I possibly could. That makes sense. And that that's just awesome. So, you graduate from Wheaton and you get the job as an assistant at St. Michael's College, which is a, a Division II school in the Northeast 10, like, like I mentioned. What were some of the challenges of coaching the guys on that team as they were just really close in age to you were at the time? Yeah, so for me it was nice because I was really thrown, um, really thrown in the fire there at St. Mike's. You know, being the second assistant on staff, and I was fortunate to work with a uh, really good head coach who gave his assistants a lot of ownership over the program. Um, so I think naturally you have to adjust pretty quickly. You know, going from the player perspective to the coach perspective. Um, but I also think sometimes, you know, you can use that youth to your advantage a little bit. Um, and for me, you know, that was the ability to just, you know, spend a lot of hours in, in the gym with the guys. Um, I kind of took control over the strength conditioning program a little bit there. Um, and obviously, you know, it is a challenge at first because you're fresh out of college. You're used to being a player. Now you're around guys who maybe your age or maybe even a little older than you. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, they respond pretty quickly when you show that, that you really care about them as individuals and, right. and you're really looking out for their best interest and, and you're going to try to do your homework to help them become the best players that they can possibly be. Um, so for, for me, you know, that, uh, that transition occurred relatively early, um, when, when I got to St. Mike's, but it is definitely, you know, a little bit of initial challenge kind of changing your hat from, from the player perspective than to the coach perspective. Gotcha. So, so after one season at, at St. Mike's, you go to Bowdoin college in, in the NESCAC and division three as an assistant, what are some of the differences in the responsibilities of an assistant coach at the division two level compared to the division three level? Yeah, so I think it starts um, with the fact that when you get a lot of Division three schools, especially if it's a full-time position like it was at Bowdoin College, um, you're really like the only assistant on staff at a lot of places. Yeah. So it, it's a combination of really doing everything within the basketball program, but also, you know, the athletic department in general. Um, so I think it's just, you know, being around almost all aspects of, of running a Division three basketball program. So, you know, it's not just about basketball. So, yes, it, it involves a lot of the recruiting, almost all the scouting reports on staff. Um, but for me, it also, you know, was about being part of the department there. So, you know, everybody, you know, for the most part of the NESCAC at the assistant level, you have other responsibilities. So for me, that was, you know, being in charge of game management for different sports you know, right. in the fall and, and making sure those games are in those contests are, are running pretty smoothly and, and you have the right setup and, and everything like that. So it was the ability to be completely thrown into, you know, an entire athletic department and, and you know, being able to learn um, 
um, you know, from different people within that athletic department and be able to, to be able to do a variety of things there. Yeah, I, I remember the assistants at Wesleyan during during my time on the men's and women's side of a whole bunch yep. of sports would, would compete to try to get the, the quote-unquote marquee uh, fall and, and spring sport games, mainly just that they didn't have to go to the to the faraway fields. Uh, exactly, exactly. Uh, yep. so, there, so there's many different rivalries in the NESCAC. I was a part of the, the little three rivalry for four years, which is Williams, Amherst, and Wesleyan. Uh, yep. and, but there's another rivalry up in Maine uh, dubbed the CBB uh, for the three main NESCAC schools, Colby, Bowdoin, and Bates. For those yep. who don't know, what is what is that rivalry like between the three in-state schools? So it is a fun rivalry. And, and what's nice, uh, you know, or what's interesting about the NESCAC is in general, you really only play everybody once for the most part yeah. in conference. So by having this rivalry, it's, it's a way to play these schools twice um, and also count it as basically like a non-conference game. So a lot of times you'll have a relatively early on in your season, um, you know, and, and it's because you're playing each other twice every year, it, that rivalry has really been built up over the years. Um, so it's fun. You know, all three of these schools have been comparable the last, you know, six or seven years here and we split a lot of times with, with the three schools um, but it really is fun you know the students love it so they come out and really support those games and it just creates a nice environment to play in and, and it's nice to kind of have those rivals that you're playing twice a year rather than just once a year yeah for sure and and you know coach it's it's always been uh, a curiosity of mine just how when you're getting ready because as you said in, in the NESCAC a lot of teams you basically only play once but and I know coaches love to say that they try to pr- pr- approach each game the same but with those rivalry games you're playing them twice in a season and, and even some conference folks you'll play twice in in the playoffs just from a coach's perspective what is the preparation like for a team that you have already played compared to a team that you may have just been playing for the first time in that season like is is the film scout different is is the on-court prep different going into that second matchup versus the first one yeah it might not it's not necessarily different in the preparation um but there is a new kind of sense of familiarity with the team that that you have that you might not normally have um so for the most part the second time when you're playing that opponent you know your players are already familiar with their personnel and and maybe some of the offensive and defense concepts that you do um i think from a coaching perspective a lot of that is really about breaking down the first time you played Mm -hmm. and then finding little adjustments to maybe take advantage with with how that team might have played you and and how your you know preparation might have been the first time around so so small adjustments here and there uh, but i think most importantly it's just the the familiarity that you then have for those teams gotcha gotcha so so during your time at Bowdoin, you had the opportunity to coach one of the best players in modern nescac history in lucas hausman who was the oh, yeah. two, 2015 nescac player of the year and he ended his career as the holder of the highest point per game season average in school history his senior he yep. averaged over 25 points a game uh, and he's gone on to have a very successful playing career overseas, first in Spain and then in Israel as well. Just for the listeners who don't know, what was his game like and, and just what was it like coaching a guy like him? Yeah, so he was just a guy who absolutely loves basketball and loves competing. So you could always find him in the gym working on his game. Um, and you know, he was very creative when he was in the gym working on his game. Not a guy who just did drill after drill after drill, but you could tell he was always having fun out there. He almost mm-hmm. always had a smile on his face. Um, and his game reflected that. Uh, he was really smooth out there. He had a lot of different ways to create his shot. 
Um, you could really shoot it from three, um, but he could always get his shot off off the bounce. And he had a really nice step back, and he used that step back as a way to kind of get defenders out of their stance a little bit and then have, have some different things to the rim. Um, you know, for those that don't know him, he was really skinny as, yeah. as like an off guard, um, and he almost used that to his advantage. It was almost like he was always bouncing off of people to create a shot, um, almost wanted to, to make it look like you could be really physical with him, then he kind of released from you to create different opportunities around the rim or for his step back um so he was just a guy who, who really knew his game and trusted his game and and was always working on being creative in the gym to, to do some different things um you know he really thrived his junior year in the NESCAC yeah. we had a pretty good pretty good team that year and had some players around him to space it um but we actually had some injuries that year where we really needed him to kind of be a go-to guy and in return he absolutely responded you know hit his sophomore year you know he had a good sophomore year but it might not have shown the the what was about to come necessarily um in his junior year especially towards the second half of that year um he was just really really scoring the ball at a really high level yeah for sure he he when, when i was a freshman at wesleyan that was the year after he graduated and all the guys yeah. on the team were just talking about like oh thank god he's he's yes. out of the, the conference so but during your time at bowden the team had other had, had two other just elite wing players in Jack Simons and David Reynolds. Both are about six five, six six, very good shooters, great scores, and are personally in my own short list for the best pure scores in the NESCAC during my time yeah. in the league. One thing that made them so unique and just the Bowden teams so unique is that you guys ran a lot of isolation plays and a lot of isolation sets for them that were incredibly effective. What what is that like as a coach to have these guys who can score so well in isolation? Yeah, so obviously it's unique to this level a little bit um, when you have guys, especially at that size, who can really shoot over their defenders. Um, in our philosophy, especially at Bowdoin, a lot of times was, you know, just give them the, the proper space to go make some plays. And yeah. there are days when those guys absolutely have it going and they're really tough to stop. And then in return, a lot of times they end up drawing some early double teams or, you know, at least like, you know, denial where it's going to open up driving lanes for some other guys as well. Um, and both guys, like you said, being at, you know, 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, with the ability to really shoot it from three just opens a lot up for everybody else. So, um, you know, naturally I think we played through those guys a lot. Um, they're a little different than some of the other really elite wings in the NESCAC because they might not have been nearly as explosive or as right. quick on the perimeter. Um, but they, again, they knew their game. They knew how to get their shot off. Um, and part of that is because their size and ability to shoot over people. So we played through them and a lot of times, yeah, it did end up being some, some different types of isolation plays, you know, after, after some action to, to let them go a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Just to show how small the basketball world is. I was at the Colgate elite camp after my sophomore year. And who was on my team, but uh, but David Reynolds, and then yeah, that's funny. and then all of a sudden, three years later, he's given us you know buckets in in the NESCAC. Yep. So, uh, one thing that that I've always wondered about, Coach, is when you're prepping for teams, they all know who who you guys have. The NESCAC is a huge scout heavy uh, league. Coach Bridgeland, now the former coach at Whitman and the new coach at the University of the Redlands, said on this podcast that one thing that he tries to do is steal practice time from the other team, meaning just how much time is the other team using in their practices to get ready for something unique that, that they do. So, so in their case, it's their full court press. Just from my time at Wesleyan, when we were getting ready to play Bowdoin, we spent a ton of time getting ready for 
facing Simons and Reynolds and just their tendencies and everything. And But just how does having scores like Hausman, Reynolds, and Simons affect your own game prep, knowing that the other teams are spending so much time getting ready for, for them? Yeah, I think a lot of it is continuing to develop new ideas to, to get them the ball with where they really like it and then create space for them and make sure they know their looks from there. Um, so we were always adapting certain things um, to how teams might play us and how teams might try to take those guys away. Um, it's also something that we really had to do at Nichols as well, yeah. um, where I was the head coach last season just because we had two really like you know lethal scores in the backcourt for us. Um, so it's ability to, to constantly kind of adapt what you do you know, depending on how teams are going to play those guys and, and most importantly, how teams are going to try to take those guys out. And again, a lot of times, you know, because teams are, are going to try to really deny their touch and everything else, it creates space for some of those other players that you have. So right. utilize the right types of matchup to, to get other guys driving it toward, towards those gaps um, it is how we kind of, you know, adapted our philosophy, you know, throughout the year at, at Bowdoin to use their space to, or to use their denial to create space for, for other guys on the team. Gotcha. Gotcha. So in the summer of 2018, you leave Bowdoin and you become the head coach at Nichols College. They were coming off a 25-4 and season and featured an incredibly talented group with Marcos Echeverria, Deontay Bruton, and Jerome, Cun- and Jerome Cunningham, just to name a few of the guys who were coming back. When you first got the job, what immediately jumped out to you about this group that you are now leading? Yeah, so I mean, I think it started, um, you know, before I even got the job, just watching film from them from the previous couple of years. And it, it was a team that really was, you know, performing at a really high level for multiple years in a row. Um, you know, they had made the NCAA tournament the previous two years, won the conference tournament the previous two years. And I, I think what really jumps out at you is just the talent level. You know, and Nichols might not be as well known of a yeah. of a school or a name as some of the NESCAC schools, um, but the talent level that was in that program was was really special. So um, I think that's the immediate thing that jumps out at you is just, you know, at almost every position, guys being able to make plays and the level of athleticism and quickness on the perimeter um, with the guys that, that, you know, were there at Nichols. And then, you know, especially in the backcourt, when you look at Deontay and Marcos, the ability for those guys just to be able to create their own shot uh, was really special. So, um, you know, when I first got the job, you know, right away, you, you knew it was going to be, you know, a fun situation where you just have talent all the way around, um, you know, and, and for us, you know, that meant really trying to build on, you know, what they had pre- had done the previous two years and build on that success, learn from their previous success and, and hope to kind of keep things going in that direction. And, and the team was kind of, you know, ready to make, to make that deep run that we ended up making. Yeah. So you're, you're used to having elite scores on your team just from your time at Bowdoin, but that Nichols team, as you mentioned, was led by uh, Marcos Echeverria and Deontay uh, Bruton on the wing. And one thing that was unique about Marcos was that he was your point guard, best player, graduated with over 2,500 career points, the program's all-time leading scorer, and also the all-time leader in three-pointers made with 479 made threes in his career. The most unique thing about him is that He's listed his senior year at five foot ten, 147 pounds. Yep. Yep. As a coach, yeah, we, what were some of the things you tried to do to utilize his incredible scoring abilities? Yeah, so we actually that year we started basically three guards that were yeah. all like five ten or five eleven, and they all brought something different to the table. Um, but they were all extremely tough, and they all had a chip on their shoulder. Yep. Um, and we never questioned their size. And I don't think opposing coaches ever questioned their size and no. their ability to perform um, just because they're just such good basketball players and they're tough. 
Um, and so the thing with Marcos is obviously he can really shoot the ball at, you know, the highest level possible. Um, one stat that that's unbelievable. A lot of people don't know about him is he went, I believe 104, 103, 105 games, 105 with a made three pointer, which is the record at, at all levels. Um, Mm -hmm. it just shows the consistency with him just, you know, for his four year career there, you know, he won over a hundred games in his four year career. So the the consistency of him being able to shoot the ball, but also be able to score and just perform at a really high level. Um, but one of the things that also makes him unique is his speed, you know, North South, whether that's in transition, um, without the ball, like moving whatever the case may be just his overall speed um so we did a lot of things um just to try to give him a lot of early space um in the clock and and be able to have him have the green light just be able to go um, yeah. and he really thrived in that and and he also changes direction so quickly so he has the ability to go really hard to his right hand throw a pass stop on the dime space back up to the three-point line and then and then catch and shoot it on a quick reversal um so he was always moving and he was in great shape all season long um so he just had that motor to him that that was you know really fun to coach and we gave him a ton of freedom and all that freedom for him was earned and for, you know, sure. for us as coaches you know they, those guys almost wowed us on a daily basis with what they were able to do out there on the court so we, we had a lot of fun coaching them. a lot of great coaches coach say that every season has adversity it's not a question of if your team will have adversity but more so when and and you guys faced a really unique situation. I don't know if it was you know what would you would call adversity, but just a really weird, unique, incredible situation where you guys ended up making national headlines as in your season opening game against Fitchburg State. One of your your guards, Nate uh, Tanaglia, took a corner three, and the defender closing out on him clocked him with a vicious elbow to the face after looking at the ref to to check if if he was looking. Did you notice what had happened during the game and just what was it like in the days afterwards when the clip went viral and was being shown on TV shows around the country, including even on ESPN's morning show, Get Up? Yeah, so in uh, the days after, it was really unexpected, um, you know, because for us, when you're in the moment, you know, you're only focused on, you know, really trying to get better as a team and what practice is going to look like the next day and who you're preparing for. So with us as a team, honestly, it didn't really like phase us. You know, we saw it happen in the moment um, to an extent, not to you know how those videos showed afterwards. Um, but for us, you know, we were in a we were in a rock fight with them. And, yeah. and that game could have gone either way. So with us, it, it was really about like that next play at hand. And, you know, Nate's and we ended up going to the free throw line, making both free throws after that, and then we got the ball again. So it was actually, you know, started our run to potentially win that game at Fitchburg State. And, you know, after the game, things were, were actually pretty cool, and we went into the next day um, just trying to get better and focus on ourselves. And the next thing you know, it really blew up, uh, you know, with the national news and everything. Yeah. Um, so some of that, you know, was... You know, our sports information director did a great job talking to some news outlets and, and you know, with us, it was just about um, still focusing on, on what the task at hand. And for us, that was just about getting better each day. And, you know, we were fortunate that um, Nate Tanagli was completely fine mm-hmm. after that incident. Um, and he's an absolute competitor. And, yeah. and he was ready to he was just ready to move on and, and focus on the next day as well. So for us as a team, it was actually, you know, pretty calm. Um, gotcha. But everything certainly did start to start to blow up over social media and, and with the national news outlets. For sure. So you guys played a very challenging non-conference schedule that year, going up against three NESCAC teams and other regional powers such as Eastern Connecticut State and Endicott. 
Coaches vary on how they approach non-conference schedules with schools like Syracuse and Jim Beheim adopting the philosophy of not really playing anyone that challenging in non-conference because their conference plays so hard. And then you have other teams like Gonzaga who will say, hey, we'll play anyone anywhere. How did you approach the non-conference portion of your schedule as a first-year head coach when you're really in charge of it for the first time? Yeah, so for us, it's really important, um, you know, being at Nichols when you're trying to make the NCAA tournament, it, it, to play as tough as a schedule as you possibly can, um, you know, because you don't always get the strength of schedule. The CCC is very good right now, and it's changed a little bit, um, but you don't always have the strength of schedule in conference to, if you just do well during your conference play, to potentially make the NCAA tournament. You know, a lot of years, it, it's a one-bid league, um, yeah. even though it's trending to potentially go into a two-bid league. Um, and so you need to schedule as aggressive as possible, um, and that was something that the previous coach at Nichols started to do a really good job of. Um, so when I first got the job, the schedule for the most part was in place. We gotcha. keep a couple of those games going. Um, but we were definitely in a position to, to really try to challenge ourselves as a team and, and try to play and schedule the best teams in, in New England, um, you know, to, to push us that year and, and potentially put us, you know, in a position to, to make the NCAA tournament. And, you know, at that point, if we were going to make the NCAA tournament, we already played some of the best teams. So you right. know, for us as a team, we, 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 were, we thought we were going to be ready. So the team headed into the conference championship weekend, 24-2. and You guys match up with Gordon College for the third time during that season. And what was a great game, Marcos Echeverria and uh, Deontay Bruton both scored over 30 points, and you guys go on to win that game 105-90. to As a first-year head coach, how did you approach the preparation and getting your team ready for such a, for such a big game? Yeah, so it actually started a little bit before that. So we went into the uh, semifinal game. We played a really good Western New England team who we had two battles with during the regular season. So it was our third time playing them. Um, and Colin Tab, the head coach there, does a terrific job. And they were really re- well prepared. And they came at us at our place early on and, and made some really big runs. Um, so that game was just an absolute battle where, you know, we had to come from behind. And, um, you know, Marcos had a great second half. Deontay had a great second half that game. And, and then after that, you know, you only have a couple of days prep to, to get ready for Gordon. Yeah. Um, and Gordon it was the third time for us playing them. Uh, we split with them during the regular the regular season. You know, that was our one loss in conference play. Um, they were a little bit unique because they played a very extended 2-3 zone. Um, and, you know, we went into that game making a couple adjustments uh, against the zone um, and trying to get kind of Deontay and Marco some, some better perimeter looks from three. Um, and, you know, really with that game, it was, it, it was a range of emotions going into it because Nichols had been hosting the conference tournament the previous two years. And last season, we actually decided to play that game at Holy Cross. So oh, it was wow. a little different. Um, it was a little different, but, uh, but it ended up being an unbelievable environment. You know, the yeah. whole Nichols community came out to support us there. The entire Worcester area community came out. Um, Gordon, they traveled with their fans. So it was just an absolute packed environment there. So really fun. So I think, you know, once our guys kind of came out of the uh, out of the initial tunnel there to start the game, they looked around and they were really impressed with the environment. It was almost like what they were used to at, at, at uh, playing at home at, at Nichols. So um, our guys really responded that game. You know, there wasn't, in terms of the preparation go, you know, it was a lot of rest, a lot of review. Review, a lot of review of the film with, with us playing them the first two times, making some small adjustments against their zone. Um, and, and again, you know, this was our third time playing them that season. They played them a couple times a year before. So our guys were 
very familiar, familiar with yeah. them from, from a personnel standpoint. Um, they had the other, one of the best players um, in the country, but also in the conference at the time, in Eric Demers, mm-hmm. who can really score at all different types of levels. So when he's hitting it from, from deep, you know, he's really tough <laughs> to stop. So, um, you know, he can hit turnarounds from everywhere on the court. He, he's just right. a tough basketball player and a really lethal scorer. So we knew we kind of had to keep him in check. Um, but, you know, the guys really played well that game. We were sharing the ball. We got some pretty good looks against the zone and, and you know, had a decent lead early on and then just kind of sustained that for, for the course of the game. So, Coach, I've talked before on this podcast about the structure of the Division Three tournament and how it's different than Division One. You guys find out on Monday with the selection show that you guys are playing Middlebury in a pod hosted by Rowan that on that Friday. One thing that's also challenging about getting ready to play the Division Three tournament besides uh, just how, how it's structured is that coaching staffs in Division Three are just a lot smaller than in uh, Division One and D1. You could have 10 assistants working on breaking down film and getting ready, and you know Division Three teams, you know, it's much smaller. I remember my coaches at Wesley and my assistants uh, getting ready for our NCAA tournament games. You know, some, sometimes they pulled all-nighters and stayed in the office yep. all night. Can you talk about what goes into it as a staff at the Division Three level and a program just to get ready uh, to play a really good Middlebury team that Friday? Yeah, so it, it is a lot kind of thrown at you pretty quickly. And, and the initial thing is, you know, to be able to watch a bunch of film on the teams that, you, that you're going to play and that you might be playing um, and then try to simplify all the film that, that you're watching and what the scale might be to be able to give it to your players where you're not overloading them. You know, you don't want to overcomplicate things going into that tournament. You want to be very well prepared, but you also, for us, want our guys to play very loose and play with that chip on our shoulder that we kind of had all season. Um, So as a coaching staff, yeah, you're going to log a lot of hours watching film and breaking things down. Um, But then I think the challenging part of that is then to be able to simplify that to give give that scout to your guys so um, it's very direct. And again, you're not overcomplicating anything. Um, So a lot of it ends up you know, potentially being a review of things that you did all year and how mm-hmm. you guarded certain situations and, and rather than throwing a ton of new things at them. Um, gotcha. But then you also, you know, you also have all the travel arrangements. You have to book the hotels, you have right. to book the bus, you have to get <laughs> travel. You, you know, you have an assistant who's in charge of, you know, you know, feeding the guys and getting them all meals yep. and everything on, on the trip. Uh, so there's just a lot with it. And, and then, you know, you might be having some media interviews and everything else. So it is a busy week and it's somewhat of a, of a chaotic week, um, which is why, you know, as a basketball player, you're just trying to focus, you know, day by day on, on getting better and, and putting yourself in a position, you know, potentially win that game on that Friday night. So that game against Middlebury was a great game, and you guys end up being down 10 at the half, 43-33. What do you remember about that halftime and what you guys did to turn the tables to come back and win that game? Yeah, so, you know, going in at halftime there, you know, I we still felt like, you know, we were really confident that we were still in a good spot, you know, despite the score. Um, you know, it was a situation with us, you know, we had come from behind a, a bunch all season, so our guys really believed in each other. Um, we, you know, tightened up the defensive end a little bit. Um, you know, I remember our foreman, Jerome Cunningham, really came alive on the defensive end in that second half. Yep. He was all over the place, blocking shots, you know, getting every rebound outside of his area. And, and that helped us get some easier transition opportunities. Um, and then again, you know, 
with the game on the line, you know, there's not many people I'd rather have than, than Marcos and Deontay making plays. And, yep. and they made those plays to, to carry us to a win there. So, um, you know, it, it was really just kind of a, a continued self, sense of confidence with all of our guys and, and believing in each other. Even though, you know, we were down, we had been there before, you know, our guys are ready to go. So you guys go on to win that game and beat the pods host Rowan in the second round and to advance to the Sweet 16 to face Amherst. And what I'll just tell you, honestly, is a just in what was a brutal, incredible group of teams that included Swarthmore and Randolph-Macon. Honestly, I thought oh, it was yeah. the, the, the toughest pot of the tournament. And all four of you, that, you know, that could have been the, the, the final four right there. Yep. Amherst yep. had won the NESCAC that, that year. And just because we played them a bunch of times, I believe that they were primed for a run to the final four. Uh, in one of the best games of the season, you guys pull off the win. Before we talk about that game... Uh, I want to highlight your crowd in that one. Nichols and, and Amherst College are both close geographically to each other, about a 90-minute drive away, depending on how fast you're going. The, the crowd was packed, and it truly looked like it could have been a, a Nichols home, home game. What did yeah. it mean to you as a coach to see that type of the support for your team and from, from the community for that type of game? Well, honestly, like that's just the environment that that is Nichols College right now. They're super supportive with everything. Um, they love athletics there. They've been great to the basketball program over the years, and, and it's really a top-down approach. Like, like our president goes to or the president Nichols goes to almost every single game. She's that's in awesome. the crowd. She's cheering. <laughs> she was sitting. She was sitting in the first row behind our bench. She had all of our away games. You know, she made the trip to to be down at Rowan for that tournament. So honestly, like it starts with her, and, and then and then everybody follows suit. So. You know, they're, they're, it's just a really, really supportive group, and it makes it fun. Um, and our guys love it; they appreciate it. You know, they're friends with everybody else all, all over the community there. Right. Um, so when we uh, when we found our job being at Amherst for for that following weekend, you know, the school was really excited because they knew that they could bust bust some people there. Yeah. Um, and I remember being on a conference call um, going into that tournament, and a lot of times you get like limited tickets being an away game into mm-hmm. some of those, you know, NCAA tournaments. And because Amherst was on spring break, so they didn't have a lot of their own fans there because people were home on spring break. Yeah. They opened it up and they basically said, hey, we're, it's, it's almost unlimited tickets where if you're able to get in the door, you're going to be able to be here. So Nichols That's honestly awesome. lit up when they heard that. So we bust a ton of fans. And again, the Worcester area community in general, mm-hmm. along with the Nichols community, they came out to support that game. And, you know, it really was standing room only. And yeah. you could see green and black all over the place in that gym. For sure. It was truly it was incredible to see. And one of the most exciting three minutes of the game in, in the second half, which was just a truly back-and-forth battle with both sides hitting big shot after big shot, Marcos Echeverria catches fire and hits two unbelievable three-pointers on back-to-back possessions to give you a three-point lead with just under seven to go after previously trailing by nine earlier in the second half. And then a few possessions later, he does his own Steph Curry impression and hits another three, turning around before the ball even goes in. As a coach, what is it like to watch someone like that catch fire, such a big moment of the game? Because just from a fan's perspective, it's awesome. Yeah, well, it's awesome to have those guys as a coach. Uh, (laughs) It's just fun. Like, again, those are the types of players that, that can just go and make plays. And, you know, him with the ball in his hands, like, being able to make a play is much better than anything that we might draw up as coaches. Um, so, you know, you've got to give those guys a lot of freedom and, 
you know, he's just fun when he has space to go and he gets in his rhythm. He's just fun to watch. So again, it's a situation where those guys, like a lot of times they, they wow you, you know, yeah. as coaches, which it's very special when you get to coach a player like that. Um, and with him, yeah, he had that three minute stretch in the second <laughs> half where all of a sudden he completely started to get going. Yeah. And just like that, it, it drastically changes the game. Um, and if you've ever seen Marcus play and you start to get used to watching him play, you know, if there's a stretch where, you know, he doesn't score in a little bit, you're almost waiting for that. Yep. Oh, here it comes. Like he's about to go off. For sure. Um, and that was almost the case, you know, against Amherst. And all of a sudden, you know, it came there on, on you know, three out of the last five possessions or three out of the five possessions or something like that um, to give us that, that, you know, 9-0 run or whatever the case was. Um, but yeah, he had it going and he was able to create his own shot a couple times in a row and, and, you know, just, just had it going from three. He was definitely, uh, definitely in his rhythm that game. So, Coach, Amherst had the ball in a baseline out-of-bounds set with 5.9 seconds to go coming out of a timeout. And they were they're able to get the ball to one of their best shooters, Garrett Day, for three. I've only experienced this from a player's perspective, but as a coach, what is going through your mind as you approach the timeout, in, in the timeout, and then and then finally, just as the ball is in the air heading towards the basket. Yeah, so, you know, in the timeout, we talk about, you know, certain ways that we want to play that based on out of bounds and certain things that, you know, we might be switching to try to eliminate some looks and, or, or what screens we might be fighting through. Um, and they ran a pretty good play, and they got Garrett Day, who's a really good scorer, a potential decent look from three. Um, you know, our guys tried to try to cover and make up that ground a little bit off the screen and, and get there a little bit. Um, but, yeah, it, it was – for us, it was just, you know, trying to do the right thing after the timeout. You know, we had been there before. We knew kind of mm-hmm. the time and score situation. Um, but obviously, Amherst is good, and they're well coached. And they're able to get the ball in bounds and, and get a decent look. Yeah, f- for sure. And f- for a second, I thought, you know, just for someone who's played against Amherst so long, it's going to be another Amherst miracle at Lafrac G- Gymnasium. Well, but- yeah, I, I, I had lost as a coach at, uh, at Bowdoin. I lost a couple tough ones there. We actually lost one year. Um, on a half-court buzzer beater from Johnny McCarthy. Yep. So I had been there on the other side of it a bunch at their place. Um, so it was nice to, to not have them convert that one down the stretch. Yeah, I, I think McCarthy shot like 75% from, from half-court in, in his career. It was, it was, it was unbelievable. No so, you guys, yep. so you guys win that game and move on to face Swarthmore in the Elite Eight. I personally think Swarthmore is one of the toughest teams to prep for because their offense is purely read-and-react – motion offense they don't run a lot of sets how do you go about getting ready for your team to face them with less than 24 hours uh to do it yeah so with us with our approach almost all year was you know we don't want to overload our guys yeah you know, less was the most important at the time um you know we want to be able to break down their film and, and again simplify that approach um but obviously as a coaching staff and watching swarthmore you know they're one of the the, the most organized groups uh, from a coaching staff and and what they do on the offensive side of the ball and and how they create certain looks is really fun. Um, And like you said, it's all like read and react, you know, Davidson type type system stuff. Um, And they do a great job and they've got a bunch of shooters who really shoot it at a high level. So um, for us, we knew that it it was, you know, going to be a tough game. And, and, you know, for us, we wanted to be well rested. We wanted to be able to go in. Um, You know, we we had just had a tough one against Amherst. Um, We wanted to get our guys to get a good night's sleep. And then you know, the next morning, meet as a coaching staff, meet meet as a as a program, and 
you know, kind of go over the scout and again, try to simplify that as, as much as we can. Yeah. Um, but we know, we knew we were going to have to make some special plays to have a chance to win that game. Um, and, and so again, you know, for us, it was simplifying the approach, you know, making sure we knew the scout and what we were trying to do. Um, but then making sure, you know, our bodies were as recovered as they possibly could be from playing the, the previous night. Um, and then have some fun with it, go out there and enjoy the moment and, and go play hard. Yeah. And that was a, just a great game. I was home from school and started my spring break and I watched that game with my dad and that was just a back and forth just another awesome game and that was that was, that was just one of those games where you know you, you felt bad that that someone had to lose right exactly uh, so exactly. so you guys fall in that one to, to Swarthmore they, they go on and become the eventual national runner-up and you guys finish the season 28 and 3 and that, that following summer in, in the summer 2019 you become the head coach at Division 2 Assumption College in the Northeast 10. What went into the decision to leave Nichols and go back to Division Two? Well, it was an extremely difficult decision for me just because obviously I loved everything about Nichols, um, loved the people there, you know, really loved the, the direction the school was going in, obviously loved everybody in, a, in the basketball program there. Um, and it was a situation where I wasn't necessarily looking to leave Nichols, um, you know, because I was completely bought into everything going on there. Um, but obviously, you know, here at Assumption, being able to be, you know, in a Division Two environment, you know, where you have full scholarships, um, you know, I, I was used to the Northeast End because I was – because I had worked in it previously at St. Michael's College. Um, and so I knew it was an extremely high level of basketball and, and really comparable to a lot of the, the low Division One conferences. Um, and, and one thing that I love about this level is the ability to work with your team almost all academic year. You know, obviously in Division Three, you don't get a fall. You don't really get a spring with the guys. You can just work out with them during the season. Uh, so one thing that really intrigued me here was the ability, the ability to work out with the team almost all academic year. Um, and then, you know, Assumption Basketball, it's really a, a program that's used to success you know it's um back in the 60s 70s 80s early 90s this was a division two program that made multiple deep runs to the final four in ncaa division two um you know back in the day they'd schedule a lot of division one games and, and beat a lot of division one opponents mm-hmm. so the alumni base here is like extremely supportive of basketball you know they want to see you know basketball be at a really high level here and, and you know again back in the day every game was sold out at assumption right it was on all the the local uh, you know, news channels here. They, they had every game on the news. Um, it, it just, it's a really fun environment and a really supportive community where, where people are all in and want to see basketball be extremely successful. So, you know, the more research I did about Assumption and everything else, I knew that it was, uh, it was time to kind of make that jump. You mentioned one aspect of Division Two uh, is that they do have full basketball scholarships. That's very different than coaching and recruiting in Division Three when you have no scholarships to offer. How is it different approaching the summer recruiting circuit with uh, with scholarships in hand? Does it change yeah, what so you do at all? It, it doesn't necessarily change what you do or change your approach um, until kind of the end of the process when – you know, now things become binding. So now it actually becomes, you know, a time to offer somebody a scholarship. And if they accept it, obviously that, that's a full commit. So, so sometimes it changes the timeline. Obviously in division three, a lot of times you can just continue recruiting somebody hoping at the end of the day, they're, they're going to kind of submit that deposit to, to make sure they go to your school. Um, so sometimes it, uh, it shortens that timeline a little bit. Um, 
and then obviously, you know, you're, you're trying to recruit high level guys, just like you would anywhere at, at any level. Um, and you're trying to recruit guys that you see being a good fit for your program and, and the culture of your program that you're trying to create. So the approach obviously gets adapted at every school that you're at, um, to what fits you in, in that school and what might be the niche of that school. Um, so it's nothing crazy, um, with that approach but then obviously I, I think one thing that helps simplify it a little bit is you know bringing guys on campus for official visits yeah um you know you, you truly bring them on official visits a lot of times that's when you offer the scholarship to those guys and in you know they also get a chance to play on their official visits with the team um, a lot of times in like a tryout type capacity that you're not allowed to do uh, by NCAA rules in, in division three uh, so get got it gets guys more comfortable with your team and, and maybe even playing style and as a coach you get to evaluate them a little bit differently too when they're able to come and play with your guys gotcha so just just one thing that I don't think a lot of people realize is just how good Division II basketball is, just from how good the players are. You know, a couple of years ago, the best Division II player, Dalton Homs, uh, was considered to be a, you know, a potential first-round draft pick. He's now in the G League with the San Antonio Spurs. And just and just how good the, the teams are. Mary Mack College, for for example, was in your conference. They move up to Division One. They're in the Northeast 10 with schools like LIU Brooklyn, and St. Francis, Brooklyn, and Robert Morris, and they win the regular season this year. They weren't yeah. eligible to go to the postseason; so it was their first year. But they won the the Northeast Conference Championship basically in their first year. Can you just talk about a little bit about just how good Division Two basketball is, and just how good the players are? Yeah, so it certainly is an underrated level, and, and especially the league here in the Northeast 10 on the grand scheme of things. And in the Northeast 10, you know, we're considered one of the best Division two conferences out there in the country. Um, so for the fans that might not have seen a Division two game, I'd encourage everybody to either come out and watch it or sit at home and, and watch it online because um, all of our games are, are broadcast online as well. Uh, but like you said, it really, really is a high level and comparable to a lot of low Division one conferences as you see Merrimack, you know, making that jump and, and being extremely extremely successful in division one and, and having an unbelievable winning percentage in division one this first year. Um, you know, one thing that might be a little different for, for, you know, some schools is we don't always have the really big six ten, six eleven like interior post players that you get sometimes at either division three or, or the division one level, you get a lot of like very versatile guys, one through five being mm-hmm. similar type size and almost similar type position. So offense is a very fluid um, type game for most of these teams and you know everybody really shoots it well from three for the most part so you end up with a lot of space on the court at all times um but the level of athleticism here is is very special um you know i saw it right away when i was you know an assistant at st michael's after playing at the division three level just the type of athletes that that you get in this league division two and uh you know we still had three guys who i coached at st mike's playing overseas right now and and making a good career playing so um it, it just it's a high level and like that option to go overseas and play is there for a lot of guys coming out of this conference coming into this season as you mentioned another unique thing about d2 that's different than than d3 is that you can work and coach the guys all academic year as something that you couldn't really do at the division three level kind of how did you formulate your process and plan for uh those off-season practice hours yeah, so, you know, for me, it started um, with taking some things that we did when I was an assistant at St. Michael's, um, but then also talking to a lot of other coaches at Division Two and the Division One level to, to try to have a plan in place where, 
you know, your guys are able to have fun in the gym with each other like, mm-hmm. where they can enjoy working out. Um, and again, you know, because it is still a long season, you know, you don't want to crush them necessarily all fall either with, with what you're trying to do. So it's the balance of being able to, to have them have a lot of fun and have a lot of freedom and, and still have time on their own to get in the gym in the fall. Um, but also really work on some of the things that you need to work on and, and some of the skill development piece that you don't always have time to do at the division three level, you know, especially in the NESCAC when your season even starts later than, than most of division three yeah um so for us it was kind of balancing all of that um one thing that we tried to do a lot of in the fall for us um was really you know establish a competitive environment so we did a lot of like small sided games so a lot of three on three type stuff live we're working on our offensive and defensive concepts but we're able to compete while doing so and um, we avoid we avoided a lot of just like you know normal breakdown three on oh five on oh type stuff in the fall we, we wanted to make it as competitive as possible and let the guys play a lot out of that um you know so you know with rules you're allowed eight hours a week in the fall um four hours with the basketball and then four hours doing strength conditioning type stuff so we use most of those those eight hours a week in some capacity um and then with us the springtime here we were going to have a little bit more of a focus on you know individual player development and some more kind of you know foundational skills uh, within what we do um unfortunately obviously we, we don't have this period to, to work with our guys on the court but that's essentially how we were uh, planning to use those hours and go about our offseason at the division two level gotcha so so coach my my last main question here is you know you're you're a guy who's had a ton of success at Nichols. You're jumping up to Division Two. For for such a young coach, you've been incredibly successful so so far in your career. Do you find yourself being asked by a lot of young people who who want to go into coaching, kind of how to break into that uh, field, and and kind of do you have any advice for for those guys? Yeah, I mean, I think that's natural. Um, no matter what level you're coaching, whether that's being an assistant, um, you know, or being a head coach, I think, you know, obviously the basketball profession is a really rewarding profession. It's a lot of fun. Um, and obviously it's a lot of work as well. Um, but it's, it's intriguing to a lot of people to try to get into the business. Um, and I think a lot of times the hardest part is, you know, getting that initial foot in the door. Um, so, you know, what I tell guys that are, that are looking to get in is just try to establish as many connections as you can possibly make through coaching um, in, in work as many camps as possible, you know, try mm-hmm. to coach as many teams, whether that's a youth team, uh, uh, you know, fifth grade summer camp and AAU team, you know, a potential call, whatever the case may be, just try to get involved in some capacity gotcha. where you're actually starting to get used to being on the court in, in coaching. Um, and obviously there's a lot of different avenues to get in, whether that's, you know, trying to be an assistant at division three level division two, you know, or maybe, a, a you know, support staff at the division one level. Gotcha. Um, but then once you kind of get in the door, just, just really kind of be where your feet are really get totally involved with the program that you're in don't look ahead to what might be next and just try to do a great job of where you are and then in that moment so coach i i know you got to go and i appreciate all the time i got five rapid fire questions to to end the podcast the first one best player you have ever coached against Ooh, coached against that's a great one um at all different levels uh i'll go for the single level uh eric demers at, at gordon college okay number two you mentioned how or early in this podcast you started an AU program and you coached the team. AU basketball is known for tons of crazy stories and moments. What is one crazy AU story you can share with us from your time as a coach? Uh, nothing too crazy. Just overly involved parents arguing every call, or <laughs> trying to coach, trying to coach every dribble from the stands, which happens on a consistent basis. 
Yeah, my my favorite is when we went to a tournament without any basketballs. That was a that was <laughs> there, a great one. Well. Uh, after your second round win over Rowan College, you again made national headlines with your dance moves from uh from the locker room. <laughs> what, what was it like to have those broadcast around the country? Well, again, unexpected. I didn't know at the time. You know, we were having fun <laughs> as a team, and, and our guys dance. You know, all year long, they're dancing before games, they're dancing in practice. They have a lot of fun. I hadn't danced with them yet, so after that game, I started dancing. After we started clapping, uh, next thing you know, our sports information director is behind us filming it, and then it erupted everywhere. So, uh, un- unexpected to say the least. Do you have any pregame superstitions? Uh, I, I try to get a workout in, a, you know, a few hours before the game. Okay, and. The- Last question. This is a mailbag question from from one of our great listeners of the Double Double. Can you describe uh, Billy Battaglia, a former coach of mine, in just one sentence? I don't know if you can. Love that. Um, He was a worker. Like, in college, he was totally invested in getting better. And, you know, he was an absolute gym rat. He worked on his game at all times. Um, turned himself into a heck of a player at the Division three level. Uh, I know you guys had a lot of fun with him when he was on staff at Wesley. Yep. Uh, but definitely a, go- a good friend of mine. You got out of the business, uh, got out of the coaching business. But a great person and it was an absolute worker in, uh, in college. For sure. So, so Coach, I appreciate all the time. As always, on the Double Double, we give the last word to the coaches. Do you have anything uh, you want to say to the great people of Worcester, Massachusetts? Uh, just stay safe during this time. You know, appreciate all their support this year. Um, and now we're all in this together. We just got to stay safe, stay home right now. But, but David, I, I appreciate you having me on the podcast. Uh, hopefully you're able to get, get something from it. Um, but thanks again for everything you do with this podcast and, and for small college basketball in general. Thanks, Coach. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. That'll do it for this episode of The Double Double. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can leave us a rating or a review. Five stars would be much appreciated. You can also follow us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care and make it a great day.